This is Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast for writers and readers by writers and readers. Hello and welcome to Dissecting Dragons. I'm Madeleine Vaughan. And I'm Jules Ironside. This week, high fidelity and historical accuracy. Do adaptations have a duty to be accurate? Okay. (laughs) We're going to try not to make this too contentious, to be honest, because obviously there's been a lot of controversy over various adaptations Mm -hmm. recently, Um, some with great justification, and while we're interested in why and how it becomes an issue, we're not actually looking to bash anything specifically. No. I don't think we are anyway. (laughs) No, I I don't think so. Um, Now, I should say that this is, we're not going to be looking at at, at phantoms, uh, which is where an adaptation doesn't 100% match the book um, or it clashes with someone's headcanon. Um, you know, that is always inevitably going to be the case whenever you have any kind of adaptation. Um, but we are going to... Um, yeah, we're going to be looking at something a little bit deeper, if that makes sense. Um, yeah. We- we're also not saying that TV and film adaptations should make no changes, obviously. Yeah. Um, because adapting a book or play or historical event is definitely a hard thing to do. Yeah, and of course, particularly if you're adapting a book or something like that, which comes from a different period, and you are now kind of moving it in towards, you know, a sort of a new audience and things like that, it kind of makes sense. Um, Similarly, if you're adapting a book or or something along those lines, um, and you can't capture certain things uh, because of the way that the book is written, for example... Let's take Dracula. Uh, it's an epistolary novel. Um, it's kind of its main selling point is the kind of creeping and growing horror and things like that, which is very, very difficult yeah. to capture on film. Uh, so certainly, if you're yeah, if you're just going to have a bunch of like set pieces where someone's writing in their diary and not actually show the action, then you're probably not going to. It's not a great way to adapt adapt it. For yeah, film, and it? so you know you start making you start making changes also in, in how to represent things because you've got to visually represent them rather than sort of showing sort of the emotion of things. So hence why Dracula became weirdly attractive instead of being honestly pretty ugly <laughs> in the books. Yeah, it's like even, I mean, even in um, the the English version of Dracula, he's pretty repulsive, isn't he? It's just there's something about, he's not... He's mesmerising despite being repulsive. Yeah, and, you know, he's got palatosis and he's, you know, he's <laughs> got yeah. a monobrow and he's all that jazz. They, they just seem to forget that in the films. Um, but obviously, you know, they were trying to create something else there and they had to lean into something else because they couldn't quite capture that same creeping horror. And also they couldn't then capture it because obviously Dracula became so famous that they, it, you know, you lose the whole... The whole suspension of if you're reading Dracula and not knowing what Dracula actually is. Whereas now, of course, we read it and we're like, obviously, it's a vampire, Jonathan. <laughs> this is about the most well-known vampire. Is it Dracula? It's either Dracula or Lestat, yeah. isn't it? It's, like it's going to be one of the two of them. Um, anyway, so this episode is basically, basically an opinion piece tackling just one question. Should you be able to do anything you want with an adaptation or do you have a duty to be at least somewhat accurate? Okay, so as we've kind of touched on before, as we've just literally touched on, um, with regards to adaptation problems, when you're adapting a book for film or for TV, um, or even, I mean, for any other kind of form of media, so for podcast, for radio, for 
graphic novel. Graphic yeah. novel. <laughs> You're going to be yeah. constrained by time, either the length um, of the film or the length of the episodes or the number of panels you can do. Graphic novel novels in particular, again, using Dracula as an example, if you look at the speed in which they have to get through the panels, because you've got to draw every single one of those. So it's going to change things. Um, there's no way you can get everything in. Uh, that means that second and third tier characters will often get removed, subplots can be chopped or changed, and the main plot needs to often be more concise. Yeah, and you know we'll get into sort of the genre variations, but that is another deciding factor. Something that can be incredibly nuanced and multi-layered in a book needs to find a different way to do that in yeah. film. Um, Anyway, you're inevitably going to offend someone because reader attachment doesn't always latch onto the main character or even the main plot, and that is the yeah. Um In addition, a book's themes might adapt very well for film medium, but the actual action of the plot might be more internal than external. So depending on the genre, that can be very hard to sell. Again, Dracula... <laughs> is a great example <laughs> particularly with Jonathan Harker where a lot of it is this sort of this creeping horror for his little bits so you kind of have to lean into the action I mean it's also weirdly enough if you look if you read Lord of the Rings and then watch the Lord of the Rings adaptations the Peter Jackson ones it's completely it, different it is it's completely um, and I have to say I've just uh, I've just read Interview with the Vampire and I'm 90% of the way through the Vampire Lestat and I hadn't read either of them since I was about 13, so I thought, you know what, well, I better go back and check my facts mm -hmm. on a few things. And I was saying to Alan, who is very much a vampire chronicles uh, connoisseur and expert. <laughs> Just like, imagining it with a glass of wine, like, ah, oh, yes. <laughs> you, th you think you're joking. You, you genuinely you think you're joking. Anyway, um, it's. I was just like... It's weird. I said I was expecting there to be more set action pieces on the page. And I said, I think that expectation has come from, you know, the Queen of the Damned and the Interview of the Vampire films that were made, which were both pretty good adaptations as things mm -hmm. went. And it's just that it's not like that at all. They're very internal journeys concerning the agony of being immortal and seeing everything around you die and change and being basically removed from life being removed from world and life and being able to interact yeah. with it. What do you live for at that point? And I'm thinking, you know, it's beautifully written. It's really interesting. But how the hell did they sell Hollywood on making a lot of this stuff? Because this is hard to adapt. It's really yeah, difficult. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it's... <laughs> it, it's... It also kind of goes to show, I think as well, in the way that they then do things like longer series rather sort of doing a tv series rather than doing a film as well in that if you've got a film you've kind of actually got to put in a lot of action because you don't have that same time to show and develop the internal journeys um it's why if you, there's a there's a marketable difference between the film adaptation of pride and prejudice and obviously the tv series of pride and prejudice with colin firth in it um and yeah. I, I think there's a reason why so many people absolutely love the TV series version of it, because it is so much more accurate and true to the book. But that was something they could only do because it was a TV series. Yeah, definitely. Um, the thing with, obviously, a TV show is you're always butting up against the cancellation yes. risk. So you have no idea whether you're going to get seven seasons to really tell the story properly and mm -hmm. faithfully. 
and that leaves you usually with two choices. One, you can do a really faithful first season that explores book one with no guarantee you'll be greenlit for another mm -hmm. season. Or two, you can cram as much of the fan favourite stuff into a season one as you can in the hopes that viewing figures will be high enough that it'll get renewed and you'll get more room for future projects. Yes. Um, this is why I also think that actually um, series that uh, sort of follow um, literal series of books or graphic novels tend to actually uh, be a little bit more successful because these are onto themselves relatively contained stories. So you could within yeah. one season do right, well, we'll cover this whole book. Therefore, we've kind of finished it off. We've completed that little arc. Um, and that's sort of more satisfying. Uh, but again, it's down to the source material. It's down to what you're adapting and how much you can put into sort of one episode, what kind of genre you're writing in. There's so many different things. Yeah, definitely. Um, and, you know, Shows have made both of those options that I mentioned mm -hmm. work. Um, personally, I prefer option one because I'm okay with something not travelling at light speed. Um, I would rather see a faithful adaption of something mm -hmm. that I love or adaptation. Um, but that's just me personally. There are other people who are kind of like, yeah, I really like what they did with this and making a new, a new thing out of it for, for television. I was having this thought when I was walking mm -hmm. earlier. And I don't know what you think about it. But when I sort of conceived the idea for Harker and Blackthorn, I thought there's going to be three seasons yeah. in, in book terms. And season one is books one to five. And then book six to ten is season mm -hmm. two. So we're just coming to the end of season two, guys. <laughs> um, Explains so, so much. <laughs> it really does. It does. Explain. And then season three is, is um, you know, books 11 to 15. Mm. I can now admit there's going to be 15 books <laughs> with a few you know, spin-off novellas. And, and book 15 is, is the, in, mm -hmm. the end. Unless something goes really horribly wrong, it's the end. Um, and I'm just thinking, I don't think if somebody sort of rang me tomorrow and said, we want to adapt this, we're going for it, it's been greenlit, we've got funding, mm -hmm. etc. And I was given any say in the process, which by is no means a guarantee, by the way, if you're an author, that you'll get any say in it whatsoever, including things like title and character yeah. changes. But if I did, what would I, what would I suggest? And I think actually doing three seasons, if you could commit to them in the way that I've decided to, to package the books and I didn't package them thinking, yes, this is going to be adapted for yeah. Netflix. I genuinely didn't. I think that would work best because there isn't enough for an entire season out of book one or book two by themselves. Yeah. But I reckon if you put the first five books together and you can weave some of the threads back and forth between them and strengthen the, or make bring the um, series mm -hmm. threads a bit more to the fore, and you'd get a strong season one out of that with enough happening that people aren't going, yes, we're still looking at this mystery sort of ghost thing that comes in and feeds on people, um, you know, after 10 episodes or whatever, whereas 10 episodes of you know, sort of 45 minutes to an hour of what's happening in books one to five would kind of make sense. Yeah. But I th it made me sort of think, yeah, actually, it's quite difficult because what do you do? Do you just cut out the bits that you think are boring that other people mm -hmm. love? Yeah. And it's, it's interesting because obviously we had Hamish on the show a, a, a few weeks ago. And he was obviously talking because he's he's been uh, fortunate enough to actually be a very active well you know running the netflix adaptation of dead end um which is obviously based on his graphic novel series uh dead endia and it was very interesting to 
learn sort of about kind of his process and his approach, which was that he basically actually sort of said, right, well, let's actually do something a little bit new. So even though obviously it's very much based and still has story points and things like that from the original graphic novel, um, there are differences in the adaptation. And that was kind of a decision that he made. Um, so, and I think, you know, people who are, uh, who who have read the graphic novel will will see immediately the differences. Most particularly, obviously, is that there's an age difference uh, for for who the audience is. Um, but there's also kind of a lot of other kind of differences as well. And the fact that Hamish, as he said, was kind of conscious of the fact that there were other people who were now part of it, and he sort of wanted to make it their story too. Um, so you know, there, there's lots of ways that you can kind of approach it and one of the ways is to basically say, right, well, this is going to be something new and I'm going to treat it as something new. The same thing has obviously happened with uh, the Shadow and Bone series where they've mixed up the um, the sort of the Six of Crows books with um, the, the Grisha sort of trilogy books and kind of mixed them all together. Um, whether some people feel that's a success, some people wish they had a more faithful adaptation, but either way, the fact of the matter is, is that it is an adaptation and it was done with the mind of actually creating something that was a little bit new, which kind of worked with everything together. So it's a decision that you have to make and it's not going to please everybody. No, definitely. Um, anyway, so let's look at the whole harder sells aspect of this. So. Hollywood and TV in general, in fact, include traditional publishing mm -hmm. in this, um, are generally quite cowardly about what they put their money behind. For good reason, because they're running yep. a business. I think sometimes we as consumers of art forget that this art is actually a business that people are getting paid yeah. to make and they need to get a, a strong return on their investment yeah. for. Uh, because we love it and it's an emotional connection and we get really invested and you know fandom spring up and everything and perhaps we forget that actually no this is this is literally people's livings yeah and that you know the <laughs> recessions and, and money difficulties and stuff like that has hit everybody not just uh <laughs> yeah absolutely so i mean you know these all these corporations they have to be sort of money first because a film or series which doesn't pay will leave them out of pocket and they can't afford that. Who can afford to be several million out of pocket? Yeah, and the thing is we can say, well, hang on a second, they're very rich corporations and stuff like that. And, you know, there are definitely people, there have definitely been moments where decisions have been made from people higher up which haven't really kind of actually considered or looked at things in the long term, you know, whereby a show has actually then been very successful a la Firefly, for example, where obviously it was cut because they went, well, this isn't getting us anywhere. And then, of course, became a bit of a cult, had, you know, developed a bit of a cult following. Yeah. But at the time, the numbers, perhaps they didn't think long enough, perhaps they didn't take a chance. But the fact of the matter is, is that they were obviously motivated by money and we can't demonise them for being motivated by money because it is a business. Yeah. Now, when something gets adapted that's just another version of the hundred other things that we already have chosen films of, it's not predominantly because anyone is being racist or homophobic or sexist or whatever. Um, there might be the old person loitering in a production room somewhere who genuinely is any mm -hmm. of those things, or maybe all of them. Um, but in reality, generally people who are working in that sort of environment, their personal feelings go out of the window um, when it looks like they're going to get paid for something. I'm sorry, but money is a big speaker in this yeah. one. So... Yeah, I'm sure there are people who are kind of like, yeah, I don't want that. I'm more likely to invest in this thing because it doesn't have gay people in it. And I find the whole gay 
agenda thing really disturbing and troubling and I don't want to put that out yeah. there. Yeah, there'll be some people like that. But generally speaking, if you can prove it will pay, then you could probably get funding yeah. behind it broadly. I think a lot, I mean, part of the problem is that we have been consuming very similar stuff for, for a long yes. time. Although it has been changing and adapting. Um, but the changes have been quite small ones and they need to be small and incremental. You can't just go from sort of Victorian literature to um, the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Which, <laughs> you know, you had to have the incremental changes in there. Um, the weird thing, I, I think as well, is that actually, you know, when we think of changes, there ha we have seesawed as well. Um, and that is yeah. fairly natural. Um, and weirdly enough, I do feel like sometimes the approach that has been taken to kind of pushing forward has actually ended with everything kind of going backwards instead. Um, yeah. And, you know, there's lots and lots of different things that kind of go behind it. Um, so we can't just say, well, it's X, Y, Z. You know, there there's a whole web, there's a whole tangle. And of course, different people, different individuals. This is the interesting thing, of course, when we consider film and TV, is that it is not one person's vision. Unlike with a book or things like that, where you will have usually have a very clear author, unless you're doing kind of obviously a series with lots of other people. Um, you have one author; it's their vision, it's their story, and perhaps they have a few people, you know, who are dictating a little bit. Whereas with a with a film. This, the author, you know, then doesn't even really kind of get to see a lot of the final vision because the director is the one who's who's kind of doing that. And then, you know, there's the producer, there's the, there's the obviously the, the company itself. There's so many different people. Um, and it, it, with the TV show, of course, you're likely to have several writers and they might all have different visions. Um, uh, particularly different visions regarding, you know, characters, their their opinions, their feelings, their sexualities even. I mean, if you look at Teen Wolf, there was a writer, and I f now can't remember his name, there was a writer who was literally writing Styles as being bisexual. But basically, the, the you know, the TV, um, the producers, the, I can't remember, I think it's ABC, whatever, um, they they said, yeah. no, we're not allowing you to have, like, this storyline where he is bisexual. But the fact of the matter is, is the framing was there because the writer was literally writing him as that. Um, but that was as far as his control went, you know? Yeah, Definitely. So there's lots of factors involved. Um, generally, it's not just personal prejudice which makes different stories harder to sell to big production companies. Uh, it's because no one wants to take the risk on an unknown quantity. Yeah. But things have been changing. And if you need proof, it's easy to compare how many um, LGBTQ plus type stories are out there now compared to how many were available in the 80s and yeah. 90s. And yet there were still... Uh, queer stories in the 80s and 90s you just had to look a lot harder mm -hmm. for them so um it's not uh i'll, I'll get to that in a minute because that's part of a, a, a slightly ranty point for a bit later on in the yeah. episode <laughs> <laughs> but basically prove it sells and you can make almost anything you want it's proving it sells that's the problem and you also have to consider that just because you can sell it in america and the uk and maybe in various parts of europe that maybe you won't be able to sell it in Eastern Europe or China for various content issues. Yeah, um, I think, and this is something that sort of has amused me and, and sort of reminded me, of course, is that pretty much 
all of the kind of a, a lot of the TV and stuff that we consume nowadays um, will go through someone who lives in LA. So that this is yeah. and this is the thing is people will go, what are you talking about? Of course this will sell. Of course this could sell. Uh, but for some reason, someone has said no, it won't, and 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 that person is probably in LA. And the fact of the matter is, is that the person who is in LA will only have LA experiences. So we're not also saying that companies are always right. Uh, I think actually a lot of the time they're wrong and they're obviously very nervous about taking risks um, and they have opinions and feelings um, and are from a very uh, sort of secular little community where they don't really see a lot of the outside world, which is why sometimes we watch TV and go, this is weird. Why has this survived? But the other thing hasn't <laughs> survived. Um, so yeah, it fits the LA experience. Ergo, it is the experience of the yeah, rest of the exactly. World. <laughs> um, and it's just, and it's. I mean, it's a good. It's one of the reasons why we should say right. Well, support uh, support small small little uh, small little businesses, small little production studios, and stuff like that. And, and indie, indie writers, writers yeah, because uh, they are not in LA. <laughs> And perhaps they have a yeah. different experience to tell. So please don't think that we're we're saying automatically, well, because of that, these people are right. It's not that they're right. It's just the reality of, of the situation and why things are done in the way that they're done. Yeah. Okay, so how accurate is accurate? Well, with the, that little bit of backstory out of the way, and I promise we're not apologising on behalf of production studios who may not be producing what you want them yeah. to. It's just a case of we need a we need a ground, a, a baseline for why things don't yeah. happen. Um, let's get down to the main discussion. Do adaptations have a duty to be accurate? What are you really changing and why are you changing it? And I think that's where we start is what are you changing and why are you changing yeah. it? Um, so... Look, we all have those don't touch fandoms where we'd rather you didn't go near it um, than gave us less than 100% of what we really want. And it's okay to feel that way as long as you recognise that it's an unreasonable expectation. Um, if worse comes to worst, you can choose not to watch the adaptation. It's very simple. Um, it, for, it, it always makes me laugh, particularly when you get kind of like updated adaptations of stuff like that. Yeah. And people are like, no, they're ruining it. Um, and I'm like with the Ghostbusters thing. I didn't watch the the um, the ghost, the, the, the old female Ghostbusters, but um, <laughs> people, you know, were going crazy over it. They're like, you know, how could you ruin it? And I'm like, the, the creators are not bursting into your homes and, you know, at gunpoint and taking all copies of the old Ghostbuster films, you know. They've not deleted them. Those things do still exist. Um, you know, if you don't want to watch it, and I can understand why you can say, no, this is a classic, I, I like this, um, that's okay. Um, you don't have to consume it. In the, a lot of the time, you know, I look at sort of some of the modern, the, the the live action adaptations of all these Disney films, and I'm thinking the the animated adaptations are so much superior to these, which feel yeah. cheap and rushed. But the fact that... Yeah, I've got to say, <laughs> it's like, you need to get out of my head, because I was like literally yeah. thinking that at the same time. <laughs> the fact of the matter is, is that the... I'm, I'm, I'm going to say it... I, I think Emma Thompson is a, is a not Emma Thompson. Uh, Emma Watson is a is a lovely. Emma Thompson is also brilliant, um, but Emma yes. Watson is it seems to be a lovely person. I, I commend her as an actress. Um, she's not my Belle. 
you know, the that Beauty and the Beast, it, no. it's just, it feels empty and hollow in comparison to the one that I knew and the one that I grew up with. Um, and I think quite a few, and just, just like also the, you know, the, the Lion King adaptation, it feels empty and hollow, unlike the one I grew up with. Weirdly enough, I did actually like the um, live adaptation of Cinderella. Um, yeah, we both liked that, but it was different enough from the animated one, I think. It actually gave you more it layers. It did. Um, and you got a great sense, you know, of the relationship between uh, the prince um, and and Cinderella. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm all... I'm all for basically people going, right, well, let's make d- new and different adaptations. And if I don't like those adaptations, I'm allowed to say I don't like those adaptations. I'm allowed to complain about those adaptations. But also I can't be, you know, I can't sort of act like they're not allowed. And I and I certainly cannot get angry at people who do actually like them. Yeah, I mean, this whole thing of going online and trolling people because they like something you don't. And it's like, seriously, that's what you want to put your mental energy, your emotional energy into. You want to burst your spleen over that. That's just insane. You know, we've Um, we've talked about books and stuff like that and films that we don't like. We would never attack people who do like them. Yeah. Um, Right. So that said, there are adaptations that also run roughshod over the original in a way that is not only disrespectful, but arrogant. And I have to say, um, you mentioned Ghostbusters, and it is actually a really good um, comparison. Have you seen the most recent Ghostbusters film? It's kind of like... Yeah, I have. It's it's really good. It's charming. It's modernised. It's perhaps a bit more diverse in its casting and things. Um, It looks at the family unit in a really interesting way, I thought. And it looks at the fact that these these four hero Ghostbusters actually, you know, when the fame vanishes and everything, they were just human after all. It was, you know, it was only a paper moon kind of thing. And it was just a really, really good family film, the way they did it. I haven't seen the female Ghostbusters, but... I, and I looked at what I did see of trailers and things and the chat around it at the time made me think, that's not going to be for me. They haven't made that film for me. I'm just going to avoid yeah. it. And the reason for this is I believe that they cast it cynically. Instead of going, we're going to make female Ghostbusters and we're going to make it, you know, the whole point of it is not just Ghostbusters, but gender bent. Um, but this is a different variation on it set in the same universe or something it's i think it's the same problem we can get when we cast black actors in white roles because what you're really saying is here you go here's your diversity but the underlying premise is yeah the only stories that really matter are white stories and the only stories that really matter are male stories but it's okay you've got your representation because we've got women doing male yeah doing the equivalent of a male role and black actors doing the equivalent of a white role kind of thing and it's just that's not right you need to tell different stories yeah and give other people the opportunity yeah i i i agree with that and i and i think it is often and this is the thing is that with when it comes to these adaptations where they are just saying well now we've you know we've done a a, a kind of a, a black story instead or, or or we've turned it from male to female is that that's the extent of the adaptation you haven't actually made it a story from you know a black person's point of view or a woman's point of view you have just lazily just kind of erased 
one thing and then not really considered anything with regards to the experiences and if you have done the experiences it's usually on a very shallow level like oh therefore it was harder for this person because they had to do xyz and i'm like okay but there's more to there's more to different people's yeah. experiences than difficulty you know yeah with, without actually bothering to explore different perspectives i think this is my i mean i love seeing genuine diversity but for me genuine diversity is diversity of thought it's not just we happen to have different skin colors or we happen to have different genders yeah i agree with you um so that that's where i get really frustrated yeah, no, i'm completely with you uh, it, it's not enough you know just to just to cast a character and i think also it's rather telling that you get a lot of cases where you know diverse actors um black actors asian actors and stuff like that talk about how poorly they get treated on set um and it sh it just shows that you know the the people who are in charge of, of making these decisions haven't actually done have literally just done it sort of but for the street cred you know yeah very it's, cynically yeah it's like this is selling at the moment there is a halfway house between this sells and um we can we can do better in terms of having more characters more voices more diversity yeah. thought i think personally um anyway th uh, the adaptations that i have issue with the rough the ones that run roughshod um they're not really concerned with preserving themes presenting beloved characters or adding a new slant or being faithful to the original so again that ghostbusters comparison mm. I don't feel that the female version of Ghostbusters really cared about bringing something new to the table. I think this was, um, you know, an old property that had sold mm -hmm. well, being resold again with very thin new packaging on it. And I think that was the real issue yeah. for me. And I think it's it's interesting, of course, that you have, you know, the, the female Ghostbusters the whole, and then the, this, this sort of the sequel, as it were, because it's set in the same universe. Um, the main character was a girl. And not only that, she seems to have been coded as a neuro, um, a neurodivergent girl as well. Yeah, just just as Egon, her father yeah. was, her grandfather, sorry, not her father, God, he was an Asprey. <laughs> <laughs> her grandfather was also, but, you know, they didn't really, you know, when Ghostbusters was made in the 80s and they had Egon, it was kind of like, no, he's just the nerdy science guy. A lot of science guys are a bit like yeah. this. Um, because there wasn't really the talk around the, the autistic spectrum. Exactly. Um, and the fact of the matter is is that it that it didn't make a difference. It's just also like no. with, for example, uh, Korra. The, the Legend of Korra, which was obviously the sequel to um, Avatar The Last Airbender. Uh, one of the things was that they were very, very concerned that uh, some of the sort of the producers and stuff like that of the show were incredibly concerned that because it was a female main character, um, young boys were not going to enjoy it. Um, but the writers really knew what they were doing. And when they showed Korra to, you know, like a, a prospective audience, the, the male watchers, the male viewers loved her just as much she, because she was a fully well-rounded character. She wasn't a, look what we're doing, where she was herself into herself a well-written female character. Um, and because of that, it, it was successful. It didn't share the same success, but that uh, as the as previous. But that's for an entirely different reason. Um, and the yeah. fact of the matter is, is that it wasn't actually and hasn't and pro has proven to, to be not actually something to do with the gender 
um, or the the orientation or the ability or, or whatever of the main character, um, but actually the approach to it. And with that rewrite of the Ghostbusters one, and again, to be honest, I feel like I'm not being fair because I haven't watched it. And I do know people who did enjoy it who said this was a bit of a laugh, and that's okay. Um, but we can turn around and say that I think this other one was a more successful adaptation as a kind of a sequel because it was actually taking itself seriously. It was taking, it was creating something new, yes, but it was also taking its role seriously and not just saying, right, well, we're going to take these male roles and make them female and that's it, but actually tell a story from a, from a girl's yeah. perspective who is... Um, who is definitely coded as being neurodivergent, which is again a very different experience, whether you're a girl, a boy, uh, your background, etc. And they actually paid attention to that. Yeah, absolutely. I thought it was, I mean, I lo we watched it again recently and I just think it's a great film. It's a great feel-good family type yeah. film. And we need, we need those yeah. as well. Um, okay, one of my pet peeves with adaptations, certainly lately, is there's a lot of, I think, what the author meant to say going on. Um, I find this incredibly infuriating. Note, the author said what they meant to say. They wrote a whole book mm. on it. If you don't like it, then maybe you should adapt something else. Now, I realise that's a very knee-jerk, antagonistic response. <laughs> but I do get really frustrated when people come in and say, yeah, there's this this multi, in some cases, a multi-million pound or multi-million dollar um, fandom with people who are lifelong devotees of, of the mm -hmm. whole thing. And then someone comes in and goes, oh yeah, we're not, we're not adapting it because this is a cash cow. We're, <laughs> yeah, right. Um, we're adapting it because we think we can do better. And the author was restricted by the time she or he was writing in or whatever. And it's, that's, no, because quite frankly, the number of times, the reason a lot of these things get to be that sort of level of fandom is because they were saying something different that was pushing boundaries mm -hmm. somewhere. So, um, yes, I will get on to that proper rant yeah. in a bit. But Now, uh, I do think that, for example, a lot of people were scandalised by, uh, by the series Sanditon because they had these the sex scenes and stuff like that. And a lot of people like, how, you know, how could you do that? Um, this is not very Jane Austen. Ignoring the fact that actually it it kind of was and that... It really was yeah, Jane Austen. <laughs> um, the context was being applied. And sometimes we do have to consider, all right, what's the age? What's the period? How can we adapt things in a way that will create the same theme the same ideas and really let the audience know the scandal of the situation um it's a little bit like with adaptations of macbeth which have to recreate what the witches look like because the witches now are almost comedic in the way that you know if we if we think of them as these sort of long-fingered very stereotypical figures um they lose how scary they were and therefore lose the impact of of a lot of the scenes so i've i saw a great adaptation um with patrick stewart in it where they actually sort of made the witches um it, it sort of it was a kind of it was done as a as a sort of a false sort of war zone area and they had the witches yeah. as nurses as war you know nurses and they were terrifying to behold because they 
tapped on these kind of fears of the modern of the modern day and changed the way that they appeared changing one line where instead of saying beards um Macbeth says bibs instead because he can't see their faces because they're wearing uh, a kind of they're wearing masks um and it was so effective uh, so you can have adaptations like that which are kind of changed because they are trying to capture the true essence of what the author wanted. And in the cases of, you know, where an author has been dead for a long time, um, sometimes that is a down to guesswork. Sometimes we do have to say, okay, well, hold on a second. Like some people saying that the one the the adaptation of um, Dorian Gray had Dorian seducing and sleeping with I've just forgotten his name, the artist. Um, and a lot of people yeah. were like, well, that wasn't in the book. Um, and Dorian sort of having homosexual relationships wasn't in the book. But the fact is that you look at it and you're like, there is an implication here. Um, but again... And all they could do yeah, was imply. Yeah, because, yeah, for very obvious reasons of which, you know, we know how that all ended up for um, Oscar Wilde. Implication was all he could do. Um and the but the implication wasn't would have been enough for the audience. They would have understood because they had context during the time. And yet, you know, at the same time, we can when things are concerned with the past, we can only speculate. So people can argue, people can sort of say, and that is ultimately going to be down to the you know death of the author that the every reader is going to have a different experience reading a book because they're going to be you know their interpretation is going to be swayed by their own experiences so yes we do have yeah. to accept that but i think there is you know there's a difference between really engaging with with a book and then not engaging with that um and particularly when an author is still alive that's incredibly frustrating <laughs> yeah definitely you could just ask them um and obviously, we're not saying that, you know, changing a few things because, you know, what some of the things the author was saying or some of the things that the author's personal beliefs or viewpoints that crept in that weren't major plot mm -hmm. points, maybe they could do with being updated. So, for example, Lovecraft, um, you know, we can't we couldn't have the horror genre as it is today without his work. Yeah. You know, it is iconic. But some have his personal ideas which crept into his narrative nobody wants to write that well i hope nobody wants to adapt yeah. that because it, the kind of presentation that you know black people are inferior and that racism was a good thing it's like no that doesn't need to go in that's not a major plot point he wasn't exploring the issues the whole point of lovecraftian fiction isn't to explore those issues necessarily yeah. although there is something horrific and you know books like lovecraft country definitely explore them very well within the confines of that yeah. universe um or you know things like um I'm I'm very mixed feelings on blind casting, not because I don't like seeing black actors um, getting a chance to do traditionally white roles in certain things. So, for example, Shakespeare, I think, is eminently blind castable yeah. because it's Shakespeare is so much more about the themes than the facts. Yeah. And also so it really does. And matter. also with a lot of Shakespeare, uh, particularly if you're looking at kind of more of his his comedies and stuff like that, um, it's also blind castable because it's kind of they're all sort of set out of time yeah exactly um and i think 
for the most part it worked quite well in Bridgerton. In fact, it might have worked better in Bridgerton if they hadn't tried to come up with an explanation and just said, no, we're blind casting this. Because it's not really Regency England. It's a fantasy romance version yeah, of and, it. Yeah, and that's fine. They They were just kind of going with it. And again, I don't really mind it then. I do remember that I sort of... I saw a blind cast once which didn't make sense to me. It was on stage. Um, and it just sort of broke the suspension of disbelief where it was an adapt. It was, I tell you what, it was the adaptation of um, Frankenstein with Johnny Lee Miller and Benedict Cumberbatch. Um, and the actors who were playing um, uh, Frankenstein's father, Frankenstein's father was black and yeah. fantastic actor please don't get me wrong and I'm not saying that well he shouldn't have been allowed to take the role it's nothing to do with that it was the fact that they basically said we're going to cast a black actor to play this role um, and we're then going to have a white actor to play his son um, and weirdly enough they then said we're going to have a black actress playing the role of um, is it Elizabeth his, his wife yeah, yeah Elizabeth. Elizabeth we're going to have her, her playing Elizabeth and I'm like Okay, so the whole point with Elizabeth was that she was meant to be blonde and stuff like that. I don't really mind if they went, okay, we're going to cast her as a black actress. Um, I was totally, absolutely fine with that. Um, but the fact that basically they went, we're gonna, we want to have as many black actors clearly as possible. Um, and so we're going to have the, uh, the adopted daughter being black, the biological father being black, and then the son being white. <laughs> I was a little bit why <laughs> you've kind of sort of broken the suspension of disbelief um and i can understand blind casting i'm and as i said the the actor the actors all did a fantastic job with that i'm not going to dispute that um but i did sort of go well this is sort of breaking a little bit the suspension of disbelief um and okay you might say oh well, hold on a second so it's imminently more unbelievable that there's a there's a black there's a black guy and then someone's raised corpses from the dead and I'm like it's not really so much that it was just sort of what's the kind of the reason the justification behind the decision um and it just felt a bit unnecessary um what would have actually been kind of cool is if they just said all right well we're gonna have an entirely black cast um but obviously the whole point was that they were selling that it was Johnny Lee Miller and um Benedict Cumberbatch so they yeah. couldn't do that but I mean, I think then you also butt up against the issue of the fact that it is a white story and then you're getting black people in to tell a white story. Why are we not telling a black story kind of thing? So, yeah, it, it, it's difficult and it's difficult getting the checks and balances in. I really, you know, I can see that. Obviously, this is not something I get to make the decision over. Yeah, and again, um, this is not me therefore saying, abomishing it and saying, I'm saying it was something that I noticed that jarred yeah. just a tiny bit, um, but was in no way reflective of, the performance, the ability, um, or the right of the actors to play those parts. Um, yeah. Anyway. Um, so basically, there are adaptations that seem to do one or more of the following. Um, and these are the adaptations that really, really mm -hmm. bug me. <laughs> so, um, they, you know, that whoever is producing them does not seem to have understood or possibly even read the source material. Yeah. Um, I can think of no... No greater example of this than the, and I'm glad it kind of sank without a trace, I'm afraid. I'm sorry to say that about any production, but uh, except this one. Um, that is uh, The Watch, 
which was an adaptation of Terry Pratchett's Discworld Watch yeah. books. And I'm like, yeah, considering what you did with that, um, it's it's not anything. It bears no more than you've just taken the character names and you've tried to tap into a franchise to make yourself money easily, is, is my reading of yeah. that. Um, other things that these adaptations can do, they've decided cynically that something will sell, so they'll get some money from one terrible film or season. I, I don't like that. I feel like we should be treating with audiences in better faith yeah. than that, particularly existing audiences. And finally, you know, they realise they can tap into a huge existing fandom to make money and then just take the title, the character names, and essentially made fanfic with them, which is betraying that very fandom. Now, I'm not dissing fanfiction here, but the place for fanfiction is in specific sort of fan areas, not sort of like we've bought the rights to this and then we're just going to move the characters around like we can do whatever we want with them. I don't think that's that's right. I think you should at least be struck true to the themes. Yeah, I, and I this is, I think, the thing and when you notice whether someone is actually a genuine fan of something or, or when someone isn't. God, yeah. Um, it's, it's one of those odd things where, for example, a lot of people who watch the Orville um, have noted the fact that it feels like the Star Trek that they want. Um, yeah, uh, uh, particularly since it came out at the same time as Discovery. Yeah, um, and you compare the two and it's like, oh, you actually get Star Trek. Yeah, and, it's, it, and you can tell because he genuinely 100% loves Star Trek and took a lot of kind of notes and themes and ideas from um, from his, his experience and, and his love of this fandom. He created something new with it. And you can create something new with an adaptation. For example, we if we look at Howl's Moving Castle, the Studio Ghibli version, it's very different, obviously, from the book. Um, and uh, Diane Wynne-Jones, you know, likes the adaptation. Um, she understands that it's different. It wasn't really meant to be the same, but something of the heart, the essence was captured. And there was a clear idea of kind of uh, this love of a story. It wasn't just about taking the names. It was very, very different, however. And people who wanted an accurate portrayal of the book would have actually kind of felt very, very sad about that. Um, so it was going to yeah. be very Marmite, I think, at, at the end of the day. But the fact of the matter is, is that care and detail and attention was taken um, when it came to sort of maybe understanding what was at the heart of the book um, and discussion, you know, this wasn't just a, a secular kind of thing. It wasn't just we're taking this and we're not actually going to sort of research or look into it further or, or, or kind of actually understand also the material which might have, you know, influenced it and why it worked. This is the other thing is, is basically sort of taking um, something from the past. And when I say from the past, even 10 years ago and completely ignoring the context in which it was written um, and the period and the way that people would have understood it and the framing um, and then just adapting it and trying to sort of modernize it, modernize it without sort of understanding, okay, but what was the core there? What was it trying to do yeah. with the audience that it had? Um, and it's why I've seen adaptations of, um, I think it's Mansfield Park. Is it Mansfield Park? Yeah. Um, where they actually did talk about sort of 
the slavery element. They lent into it because, as we've said in the past, Jane Austen couldn't really talk about it that much because she could literally have been arrested for it. Um, but they took those strands, they took the themes, they did the research, and they brought that into the story in a way that didn't betray it. And when you get people who are just taking a book and sort of riding on its popularity without actually engaging with it, without actually loving it, you're going to have a lot of problems, I think. And again, it's also why when you look at the Peter Jackson um, adaptations of The Lord of the Rings, yes, they are different. But I think we can all agree that the Lord of the Rings, ser uh, you know, series of, of films were excellent. And it came from a place of absolute genuine adoration from Peter Jackson's point of view. He really cared about these books. He wanted to, uh, you know, adapt them for years and years and years. And he fought for that ability. Um, and things yeah. kind of went haywire when it came to The Hobbit because suddenly it was really just about making money rather than this love of this adaptation which he'd been harbouring for a very, very long time. Um, Let's look at a few examples, other examples. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, the first one I picked, because I know Madeline's watched the film recently, and that is Ella Enchanted. Yeah. It's a less contentious example, hopefully. Yes, a, a lot of people love this film. Um, I've enjoyed it, but it is a pantomime. Yeah. It's essentially a pantomime. And when you read the book, the book is very different. It's much more of an internal mm -hmm. journey in many ways. Uh, there are obviously action sequences. But Ella is a lot younger in the book. She's not a college-age student. Um, and it's far less about it being a love story, I think, in the book than it is about her being able to assert her own independence over her own, her own life. Yes. So if you looked at the film and you said, well, that's a hollow mockery of the book, I would understand where you were coming from. Yes. Um, it's a, I think also the other thing was that they... Uh, that, that really kind of annoyed me with the film was that uh, they com they sort of completely decided to get rid of the historical setting and that it was very much a pantomime historical setting. It wasn't it wasn't actually historical at all. <laughs> they removed all of those elements. They stopped her father actually being a villain, which he is, to be honest, he's pretty villainous. Yeah, he's not a he's good not guy. A good guy. He's a very engaging character. And there are a couple of times where I'm like, could he actually, you know... Would he? Could he maybe be on her side at some point? You know, is there a possibility for change? And there wasn't. Um, and he was a very engaging character in that way because he was weirdly charming um, in certain respects, um, whilst also being totally detestable in others. And they completely removed that. And for me also, they ruined the character of Charmant. Yeah. Um, yeah, they made him just basically a cardboard cut-out handsome prince type, didn't they? Rather than, I mean, he was fine. The actor, was yeah. Okay. Uh, don't get me wrong about the actor. They, the acting, the acting wasn't the issue at all in this. Um, you know, it wasn't about what people, you know, what they did with it. And obviously, it was a it was a treasured film, which definitely was in the style of the period. You know, um, yeah. but if you were, yeah, if you were actually looking for an adaptation of of the the story that people loved you weren't going to get it no definitely not um obviously game of thrones had a huge adaptation we've talked about game of thrones yeah. a lot but i would say 
broadly I think it was a good adaptation of the source material and in some respects it probably made the source material a bit more accessible mm -hmm. just because there's I mean if you want a fully immersive world then the Game of Thrones books you know the Song of Ice and Fire are just you know they're perfect yeah. for that but I found I mean I've still not read the last two books in fairness but I I found that at points the that I, I did find certain point of view characters less engaging, so I wasn't really paying as much attention yeah. to them. And I haven't felt compelled to go back and reread the books, and normally that's a very telling thing for me with fantasy. Yeah. If I don't feel the need to go back and reread it, then it's not that it's bad, it's just that it wasn't 100% in my wheelhouse. So, But I have rewatched the series several times. Yeah. I'm sorry if that makes me a blasphemer to, like, Game of Thrones fans out there. No, I, I know what you mean, because, I mean, I, I also, I devoured the first few books. I really loved them. And then as it went on, I really, really started to struggle. Um, I felt kind of like he should get to the point. Exactly. Um, it did <laughs> yeah. feel like what he'd done is that he, he was so engaged and so happy with sort of creating this world and, and having all these characters and stuff like that that he'd kind of missed the point of actually it felt like he just wanted to write a history instead of actually writing a story and it just got too complicated um and we started to sort of lose out with the characters that we cared about and you know i, I saw this going you know i actually want a story here um and i actually started to prefer the series um until the end um yeah. <laughs> but the fact of the matter is, is we've, we've done an entire the fact of the matter is, is that <laughs> even when the next book comes out i don't think i'll read it because at this point actually i don't feel like i'd, I'd be able to read it because i don't think i'd understand it um you know I, i'll probably just read a summary somewhere so that i kind of know vaguely what happens um but i can't yeah. i just can't engage with the story anymore <laughs> yeah um, I've obviously mentioned the watch and I don't really want to give it any more airtime, so I'm just going to skip to His Dark Materials, yeah. um, which is a book series I loved when it mm -hmm. came out. You know, I passionately wanted a demon. I, it's just one of those books where I'd get to the end of the series and I just wanted to dive back in yeah. again, um, which for me, that, that's, that's a measure of quality for me. Having said that, I was really excited when I, I thought they were, they were going to properly adapt a series. Um, the actress they chose for Lyra, she wasn't the Lyra in my head, but you know what, fine. She's a, she's a decent actress. I don't think she really plays Lyra as the character, mm -hmm. as she is in the books, but they've chosen a direction and gone in it, so fine. There's two things that really ruin the series mm -hmm. for me. Um, one is the fact that the, the actors, unless they're prompted, or certainly in the first season, forget that there are twice as many people in the room as there actually are. They forget the demons exist unless there's something specific in the script. Yeah. And yet those demons are there all the time and those demons are interacting with each other and they forgot that and they sort of skipped it and I think that was lazy on the producers and the director's parts that they forgot that these, yes, okay, it's difficult because these little animatronic and whatever... Um, CGI animals are not there physically all the time, but people should have had them in their heads all the time. Yeah. Because they literally were. The other thing that really bugs me is they have been. It's the moral cowardice, I mm. guess, because those books are basically one big question about what are we? What, what is our place in the universe? Does God exist? Yeah. Does any God exist? And they've shied away from that entire storyline, and I find that really, really sort of 
chicken shit, to be honest, because I think anything that sets itself up as a huge organisation with power should be open to criticism, and that includes organised religion, and that includes the Catholic Church and the, the Christian Church in general. And you don't necessarily need to come to the end of the series and say, yes, we should all be atheists or we should all be agnostic. And to be honest, that isn't my reading of the book. My reading of the book is actually, yeah, maybe the organised structures actually kind of restrict us and we're better off without the organised structures in Mm -hmm. many ways. But that everybody should be free to choose um, without having, you know, nastier parts of this organised structure trying to force you to believe what they think you should or practising this kind of mind control. Yeah, and I think the thing also is that it very much shows there are individuals who are part of that organised structure who are, you know, the ones who are corrupt. It attacks it, it, it attacks it attracts predators because it's a good structure for predators to yeah. hide in. And if you're not good at cleaning house, you are going to end up with, you know, your your ter- torturers, m- murderers, paedophiles, etc. Yeah. Because that's what happens when you have a big enough structure with that much power. Yeah. So it, it bothered me that they didn't engage with that. Um, final thought. This is something that I have not watched yet because we don't have it mm-hmm. in see. And I'm probably not going to watch it at the mm-hmm. moment. I don't know. I might be broadband. And that is the new adaptation of Interview with a Vampire. Yeah. I'm actually okay with casting the casting of Louis. I think it's... Again, there's a certain amount of... I have questions, basically, because <laughs> Interview with a Vampire is supposed to take place in Louisiana in, you know, 1737, I believe yeah. it is. Louis is the owner of a slave plantation. There's no way around it. You can't pretty this up. You could absolutely have a black actor playing that because a significant number of Louisiana slave plantation owners were in fact black. Mm -hmm. And not all of them were ex-slaves. Some of them were just black people who'd come over because, you know, following where the money was. Um, And, but fine, they've changed it. But in order to do that, they've had to do so much mental gymnastics. They've basically chopped off 200 years of history and said it's now set in the 1920s and the the, the more I read about it the more it's like you've taken the characters you want to play with and you've completely changed their character arcs and their story because you know better and they have more or less come out and said they know better than Anne Rice it's really really insulting Um, and then on top of that it's kind of like yeah we wanted to tell a really openly gay vampire love story and I'm like have you read the books? Mm. Seriously, have you read the books? Because the, those books, those books kind of, I mean, bearing with I read them when I was 13, those books were part of a few sequency type things that made me think, you know what, I might not actually be the straightest arrow in the <laughs> Because I'm getting things from this that, that straight people are not getting. Straight people are very much reading this as if this is just, yes, two two very straight homies hanging out together for a turn that's not what's going on guys i know there's no actual deer on screen here but seriously it's like you're not doing anything new and inventive added to which the reporter guy who is basically the person who the whole interview with the vampire is being told to daniel malloy is actually bisexual but they've straight washed him because the audience would be confused right so there's a whole bunch of shit and the whole sort of we can't have Louis 
as a slave owner because it would be wrong, but you've made him a black pimp. Isn't that a terribly harmful stereotype? Yeah. And how is it how is it better to own women and sexually exploit them than it is to own people to work in your fields? I mean, they're both bad. And let's be honest, the vampires in the Vampire Chronicles are not good guys. They're mass murderers. They're not trying to live on animals. They're killing several people a night. Yeah. It's like, this is a story about villains, people. Gay villains. Yeah. I, having, so. I haven't read the book and I haven't seen the series. I, can, I know that there are people who are enjoying the series and I think, you know, fair enough. They're just, they're, they're getting something out of it. Um, I do think that from what you've said, it does sound like a betrayal of what was previously there, but people are allowed to have their own kind of stories and they're trying, to, I guess they're trying to sell to a market which they're succeeding to sell to. But yeah. I think they're alienating a lot of the, the long-term fans with this. Having said that, it looks like they've made this gorgeously shot, you know, visually spectacular, lush, built world and if it was called anything else i would be all over that shit i really would and it i don't see why you couldn't have said you you couldn't have made like the vampire chronicles and still got the rights to interview the vampire whatever but instead of using louis and lestat or whatever use other vampires in that world explore them yeah and maybe just have some of these main characters turning you up for cameos and you would have still got, you would have got everybody on board with that. I don't understand the sort of cowardice behind this. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's again, it, it's the flavour of, of what makes Star Trek successful with each of its different series, is that the whole thing is that, okay, well, we're going to go sl with slightly different directions with all of these. Um, and that'll work, yeah. because we do have characters who come and return and, and sometimes shift over to different ones, but and it's set in the same universe... But at the same time, it's it's a different story, and therefore, you know, that's why it, it kind of it works. DS Nine and, um, uh, you know, uh, Next Generation are very very different stories, set in the same universe yeah. with crossos crossover of characters, um, and it works. Um, I do want to give an example Definitely. of of an adaptation I think did work, even though it obviously changed can I, things. Can I just sorry, please sorry, sorry. before you no, go, no, go on. To that. I just, just want to mention the Mayfair Witches because the Mayfair Witches and the Vampire Chronicles exist in the same right. universe. I've been waiting decades for an adaptation of the Mayfair Witches. And I, I'm literally, I can only say this based on the trailer, but I am very, very concerned <laughs> because it looks to me what they're doing is, oh, we've got witches. We're going to go down the dark satanic type route. And this is going to be all woman power, etc., etc. And it's like... Yes, there was a lot of women asserting their dominance in those books. But if you try and tell that story without including all the bad stuff those female characters do, and we're talking everything from incest to murder to, you know, to literally summon, summoning up the, the supposedly demonic spirit that is the familiar spirit of that family, yeah. they are not the good guys again. They're not human and they don't act like humans. I'm going to be really pissed off. I hate the fact that the one arguably really decent character who's a really good person mm -hmm. is um, Michael Curry, yeah. and he's kind of the male love interest. And he and, you know, Rowan, who is the main female character in The Witching Hour, falls in love with him. And he's kind of the reason she ends up finding out about her family and going back to New Orleans. Yeah. Um, I think they've replaced him, or taken him out entirely, and replaced him with a black... Talamascum character mm. 
um, the Talamasca being the secret society who observe the vampires and the yeah. witches. And that really bothers me because, well, on the one hand, uh, Michael Curry is, is basically New Orleans poor Irish descent. Yeah. So we're removing that entirely because we can't have uh, white um, deprivileged or underprivileged characters from an Irish background. Apparently we have to replace them with, with black characters, it would seem. Mm-hmm. And I'm all for, you know, it's, it's in the, you know, it's set in the modern day in New Orleans. We could absolutely have a diverse cast. That is not the argument I'm making. It's the fact that you're taking out this huge chunk of the story. It, I'm, I'm worried, basically. And the more I see of it, the more I'm like, oh, God, this should have been really good. And I think it's going to be really awful. <laughs> Please stop messing with my yeah. shit. <laughs> yeah. I guess we, we won't be able to tell, and obviously, until it comes out. Um, no, I'm, this is just me expressing my concerns i would love to be wrong i really would um and again it i mean i don't know enough about it so i couldn't comment but i do wonder whether this is this is coming from the point of view of someone who is an actual genuine legitimate fan or someone who had a kind of a passing interest or has been sort of commissioned to do something by someone else who had an interest yeah i would put my money more on the latter because otherwise that if it's a fan, it's someone who doesn't understand Dan Rice's body of yeah. work. It, I just don't see how you could get to there from what's actually in yeah. the books. Um, anyway, sorry. You I did have an example. I, I do apologise. Um, I, I, I wanted to kind of give the example of the Robert Downey Jr. Sherlock Holmes series. And for the life of me now, I ca- it is, it's Guy Ritchie. Guy Ritchie, obviously, um, sort of is the one who's behind um, the, the Robert Downey Jr. Uh, Sherlock Holmes stories. Now, they are very different, obviously, from the actual body of work originally. Um, yeah. And yet, I feel a genuine sense of love and understanding and a vision that came across with them. Guy Ritchie unapologetically said, I want to do a kind of an action story because he describes how when he listened to these stories, you know, with with Sherlock Holmes to begin with, uh, Sherlock Holmes was a bit of a superhero, you know. He's shown to be able to fight. He's shown to be able to be doing all these kinds of things. And we tend to think of the the obviously excellent, um, beautifully uh, done and beautifully acted uh, Jeremy Brent, um, Sherlock Holmes, who I think a lot of people can agree is probably one of the most accurate adaptations. Um, but it's very much of its period. And Guy Ritchie wanted to do something different. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, and I think despite the fact that he was doing something very different, he he still captured something of Sherlock Holmes um, because he actually genuinely loved it. So even though it's a different character it's uh, and it's a different Watson and stuff like that, it feels real in the same way that the Elementary series, um, regardless of how well it kind of went and things like that, I feel that it did come from a place, and people say, well, it was just, you know, them trying to uh, kind of make an American version of Sherlock. Um, but it was nothing like Sherlock, the BBC series. Um, it was actually very much on its own. It was much more grounded. And in the way that it was grounded, it felt very much more like 
the original stories. So even though you have these two vastly different adaptations, which went in completely different directions and drew on, you know, and were pretty much in different genres as well, because the Robert Downey Jr. one is obviously very action-based, um, they still felt very much like decent and interesting and engaging adaptations because you could tell that the people who were writing them had done their research and cared. Um, and nothing yeah. shows that more, I think, in the way that they actually wrote Watson, who I think is usually the first person to be betrayed. And he wasn't betrayed in the Jeremy Brent version, and he wasn't betrayed in the um, in the elementary version, despite the fact they went for a completely different gender and ethnicity, um, you know, and, you know, background with Joan Watson instead. Um, I thought, oh god, they're just doing this so that they can create a love interest instead of just accepting that perhaps they could tell a gay story. And that's not what they did. It's still very much just a story about two people who are friends. Um, and they did it, I think, very well with Jude Law. So it goes to show that you can change things a lot, um, but still actually capture the heart of something because you actually care about it. Yeah. Absolutely, and I think it is that capturing the heart of something yeah. and caring about it that makes for a, a really successful adaptation. Mm. Okay, um, our, our last segment for this bit, for this episode, um, is historical betrayal. And there is another type of adaptation which, in my opinion, is even more important in many ways, and that is historical yeah. events. Um, should creatives be able to bend historical facts just to tell a good story? Um, now, honestly, I can't give you a, a finite answer for this. Yeah. Uh, for one thing, our historical facts, inverted mm -hmm. commas, have been adapted already by everyone who has translated or chronicled or had an opinion on them whilst writing a historical non-fiction yeah. book. So our facts are not always what we think they are, which is why it's important to always rigorously do your mm -hmm. research and never take just from one source. Yeah. Um... <laughs> History isn't onto itself adapted because most of us weren't there. Um, <laughs> it's as simple as that. Um, and obviously yeah. there has been a very, very long history of history being adapted um, from, you know, to the extent that it's been so adapted that we now don't even uh, recognise the actual history. Um, even if we do have records of it, I mean, a very clear example of that is obviously Macbeth by Shakespeare. How many people actually know about the real life Macbeth and the real life Duncan yeah. and stuff like that? Not many. Absolutely. <laughs> um, and comments that I've had on The King's Night as in, it's really enjoyable, but Eleanor reads like a modern woman. And I'm thinking, I realise this is just that you don't know how medieval women acted or what their rights mm -hmm. were but she's actually far more accurate. Um, and I, you know, I read three independent sources of information before I include anything in any of my historical fiction yeah. books. Um, I'm incredibly finickety. And I realise that's a lot of reading and maybe not everyone wants to read three books on every major yeah. thing because that means your, your bibliography is fucking huge. Um, fine. But on the other hand, I would argue, do you really want to be one of those writers or filmmakers who add to the vast body of inaccuracies which we collectively know as but everybody knows that yeah um it's also you know um 
we do kind of have to understand that ultimately people are trying to tell a story. Um, biopics have been obviously very, very popular recently. We've had so many. We've had Freddie Mercury, you know, we've had Elvis Presley. Um, there are so many series about serial killers as well. Biopics just seem to be very, very, um, you know, in at the moment. People seem to really, really kind of want to know more about um, these figures. And as part of that, you know, a story needs to be told, which means that sometimes decisions are made, things are streamlined, and things have to also be imagined because we don't actually know the reality of of it. We can only interpret. Yeah, definitely. I do feel that there are some historical facts, as best we know them, mm -hmm. which should never be messed with, yes, though. Yes, I, I agree. Um, as in, it would literally be a betrayal to do so. So especially if it's a lesser known piece of history and you are changing how people are perceived to a more favourable or less favourable light, as in you are literally casting light or shade on mm -hmm. events um, in a way that will affect how viewers will consider them, people or mindsets of the time. I mean, I think you're kind of playing God with a narrative and to a certain extent as a writer, you're always playing God with a narrative. But I do think you've got to be really, really careful because... Some readers actually learn about history from historical yeah. fiction. So you're perpetuating... I mean, this whole thing... Okay, let's talk about a, a relatively petty example. A petty example is the way how people who don't do their research always portray medieval people as being smeared with dung yeah. and filth and dirty. And it's not... No, even your meanest peasant who had very little other than a you know like a, a round cot to live in they had soap they had water they understood basic germ theory even though they didn't know what germs were uh, they probably had in some ways a more rigorous reaching towards cleanliness than we do because they washed before and after every single meal so and i mean hands and face not just sort of like oh i'm going to scrub the pig shit off my hands i mean genuine proper washing yeah and the fact that it's kind of like, oh, we're doing the medieval period, let's throw dirt on everything. And it's just so inaccurate, but everybody knows it, so that's what people expect yeah. now. And it, it's also, again, I think it's also about how you present it. Um, if you were doing something which is obviously kind of a bit tongue-in-cheek or is obviously meant to be sort of a fantasy, like Bridgerton, um, no one is going to Bridgerton and thinking this is historically accurate. It's not trying to be historically accurate. It has very clearly sort of made itself out. It is a, it's a sort of a fantasy. In the same way that you will have kind of medieval-esque fantasies and stuff um, that sort of portray certain things um, that we know are, are not actually true. And it's also why when people kind of get a bit funny about having... Um, you know, fairy tale adaptations where you have um, people of colour or etc. And, and them saying, oh, well, that's not plausible. I kind of go, but it's not, the whole story isn't trying to be plausible. It's yeah. not actually trying to set itself up in a period of history, is it? Um, because if it were, for example, we could say, oh, you know, uh, well, Beauty and the Beast, if we were going to say, right, well, let's set this up in a, an actual historical period that it's meant to sort of be in, um, that's going to end badly for those two guys because of the historical period. Yeah. Um, and for some reason, no one seems to want it to be historical at that point. Um, so it's okay, I think, if you're kind of just doing a bit of a tongue in cheek, but I think what happens is, particularly when people are writing historical fiction, they are sort of presenting it, you know, they'll present it as this is the truth, this is the reality. Um, and 
it, people have done it for a long time as well um, in order to adhere to what they think people want and people to, people to expect um, and for the modern audience so it's like why fashion for example is a great is a great sort of reason uh, a lot of people when they're kind of cast in historical sort of fiction now or even faux historical fiction um, are, are dressed in certain ways because they need to appeal to the modern sense of beauty um, without kind of fear of you know we don't want them to look silly so you've got all these men who are wearing these boots and who are wearing these very high boots and they're wearing kind of very dark colors and it's like god forbid we actually show them in some of the fashions of the period you know with the padded um you know calves and stuff like that and the little heels and if we do have characters in that they tend to be the silly characters the characters who are looked down upon rather than actually being taken seriously as no this person is considered handsome they are wearing the height of fashion during the period you know yeah absolutely okay so let's look at a few examples i'm i'm not going to like delve like mega deeply into these just because there is um certainly with two of these there's so much wrong that we could be here all yeah. day um and the first one i will honestly say that when it came out i enjoyed it as a piece of mm -hmm. cinema but um, Braveheart is not a historical <laughs> film, guys. It is, it's not historically accurate in any way, shape or form. In fact, there's so much wrong with it, it would be really difficult to know when to start. Um, for one thing, it's not actually set in the correct year. Uh, they start off at the beginning saying, men may call me a liar, etc. But um, often the people who write history down, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, I mean, we all know the whole thing with history is written by the victors and to a certain extent that is kind of true yeah. um on the other hand just not basically getting the right decade correct <laughs> for historical events because you prefer to do it you can't even be bothered to a basic date check on google this <laughs> um is incredibly lazy and it's you know this things like william wallace was in fact uh, a lesser nobleman he wouldn't have grown up in a, a cot or a roundhouse you know he just he just wouldn't yeah. um let's talk about the jus prima nocta which is you know the the first mm -hmm. night that's actually considered to be bollocks we think it might even be a bit of sensationalism by the victorians yeah. um it may have been used jokingly uh amongst sort of later medieval lords who were taking advantage of serfs on their you know basically on their mm -hmm. land um because they had you know so the women didn't but there, it wasn't actually a legal right and it was still wrong to rape those women and it, if those women had had any way of bringing the case to court um then those lords would have had to pay a fine it's just you know obviously it's the, the rich poor divide which is the real issue yeah. there that's just completely wrong edward the longshanks you know longshanks is sort of said like it's um basically a slur but it just means he had long legs yeah he was tall he was over six foot tall which was pretty big for the yes. time <laughs> um so there, there is loads and loads wrong the whole sort of um wallace having an affair with the princess isabella well when she was brought you know when she in the film where they have her brought over to England to marry Edward II, who will be Edward II, mm -hmm. um, and they're, t they're suggesting he's gay, like it's a bad yeah. thing. Um, and, you know, we've had lots of gay kings and most of them have no difficulty fathering heirs with women. You know, it's not, 
in Edward II fathered an heir, you know, otherwise you wouldn't have had Edward III. So sorry for that little <laughs> rant a bit. But when she would have, when Isabella would have been brought over from France, she would have been two years old. They didn't actually bring her over. They married them by proxy. Yeah. Um, at the time when Wallace was supposed to be having an affair with her, you know, the whole thing at the end was she's saying, and yes, his child grows in my room, which she says to Edward the Longshanks on his deathbed, and he just sort of goes into his death throes. Oh, fucking Scott on the throne. <laughs> I must die now. You've ruined my heart, kind of thing. It's all bollocks. She was seven years old at the time and still living in France. She still hadn't met the man she'd been married to by proxy. It's bollocks. Yeah. So, yes, it's an entertaining piece of cinema, but please don't get your historical facts from something like Braveheart. It's wrong. Yeah. <laughs> the other issue I have with this, and I say this as someone who is half Scottish, is the fact that Braveheart um, suggests that the Scots are completely in the right. And it, that's not the case. Um, Edward the Longshanks only seized the throne in the end because there was so much infighting amongst the Scottish I mean I'm sure he was kind of like oh yeah well it will really suck if I have to be king of Scotland as well yeah. <laughs> um, it was like this is such a burden for me but he seized it in the end because the Scots could not stop infighting and it was destabilising the northern end of his country um, once he sort of had you know took took the, the Scottish throne for himself um it wasn't that the Scots were these poor oppressed people. They were running border raids. What the Scots typically did in a border raid was they would come into the north of England and kill anyone. Generally, these were not soldiers. They would kill uh, men, women, children. The women, and probably some of the men, got raped mm -hmm. first. Um, they would burn whole villages and towns down. They weren't fighting English soldiers. They were coming in and basically punishing the populace yeah. for England having taken the crown. And, you know, the north of England at that point in time hadn't actually been part of England for a long time. It's sort of gone back and forth between whether it was Scottish territory or English territory. So they were technically killing their own people. Yeah. Um, and they were also the just Scotsman. killing their own people blithely anyway. <laughs> anyway. Okay. Yeah, because there's nothing that, in historically, there was nothing the Scots hated more than anyone in England interrupting their deadly battle with the other Scots. <laughs> so, and honestly... England wasn't that much better of a couple of centuries before that. I mean, the, who's Scottish and who's English is really... If you look genetically, there isn't that much difference because most of it between Lowland Scots and England is very, very yeah. similar because they were the same country. Well, anyway, you could go on a complete rant there, but nobody is ever completely the good guy, good guy in historical fiction. No. Um, and I can understand basically saying, right, well, we're going to tell a story from one point of view. And that's absolutely fine. But again, um, I think that also with Braveheart is that it's not really trying to present itself as, you know, historically accurate. That's not the, that's not the case at all. When it came out, the marketing and everything, because I remember it being in the cinema, because I went to see it at the cinema as a teenager. Um, it was absolutely trying to present itself as an accurate account. No, of really? <laughs> Yep, and you did have uh, you did have a lot of Scottish people sort of out rallying and ray kind of thing. Freedom. We were, this was before Scotland sort of, um, you know, had its own political party and yeah. what have you. So you can't imagine that actually Braveheart and things really get got rolled out every single time that any there was any sort of political divide. At that that and that is the issue with really changing historical events and making it part of like a huge mainstream media film 
is the fact that people believe it and they will use it and it can actually cause political change and not necessarily for the better. Now, I'm not arguing about, you know, the Scottish National Party mm-hmm. or anything. I'm just observing that making this film, then insisting it was accurate, despite all the evidence of the contrary and despite the fact that an awful lot of people don't know their own history. Yeah. This, you know, that's not unique to Scotland. That's that's everybody everywhere. Um, most people can't tell you what effect the Second World War had. Yeah. Um, but it, it had an effect. So it's irresponsible. So yes, it's a great piece of cinema, but a little tagline saying, by the way, this is kind of inspired by, it's not actually correct. Yeah. <laughs> and it's also kind of interesting because you have to remember that whenever like Hollywood talks about having, you know, uh, you know, consulting historical experts and stuff like that um you can't they can be telling the truth in that they can have consulted historical experts but there are so many people who've historic um historians who've worked with hollywood where they'll have said that doesn't fit that doesn't work and technically they have therefore been consulted and then just completely ignored um, so yeah. you do have to take any time it says, oh yeah, n- well no, they had historical experts, you know, this person or this person with great credentials on the set, um, that doesn't mean that the director listened to a single word that they said. Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, my next example is The Last Duel. I don't know if you've seen it, and honestly, I wasn't intending to watch it because I thought, oh god, I know the subject matter and they're going to make a complete hash yeah. of it. Um basically is talking about the last private duel fought between two lords mm-hmm. and what happened was the the lady of the house um, was raped by another knight a squire sorry not a knight he was she was raped by a squire and she managed to convince her husband that this had happened and it was it was rape and he after years they I mean they they finally managed to actually get it to court to royal court in fact. Yeah. And it sort of unpacks everything that surrounded that. And this is in France in sort of like 1439, I want to say. It might have been a little bit late before or after. I don't remember the exact yeah. dates. So don't quote me on that. Um, and what they did with it was quite interesting because it's kind of a film in three segments. So the first segment dealt with the rough round the edges knight who had, you know, he'd been landed, he'd been given a castle or what have you. And... He didn't have an awful lot of money, but he'd managed to marry this disgraced um, lord's daughter. Mm-hmm. And she brought a fair bit of wealth in. And, you know, she was, uh, you know, beautiful and educated, etc., etc. And the way he presents it is that they were instantly in love and the, their wedding night was a night of bliss, etc. Um, and it's very much his personal narrative of what things happened. Yeah. Then you get the... but And his friend, this squire who is very educated and is very popular with the king, etc., you get his perspective. His perspective is that he had a falling out with the, the lord yeah. and because the lord is basically a buffoon and a bore and he's just like, you know, he's just... He's so busy demanding his rights and, and things, he doesn't understand the political ramifications. He's not good at playing the court game. Right. Whereas the, the squire actually is and was a great favourite of the king. Um, because of his wit, his intelligence, etc. And on an occasion when the, the the knight and the squire were both in attendance at a king's function and they sort of met in friendship and shook hands and the knight told his wife to, you know, kiss his friend to, you know, s- signify, as they did in medieval period, that he was kind of like family. Mm-hmm. So she did. 
the, the squire's perspective was that she and he were instantly in love. There was an instant collection. They bonded over their wit and their love of reading, etc., etc. And that when he broke in, he ensured that there was nobody in the castle. Mm -hmm. And he basically forced his way in and raped her. That she was kind of doing the um, the Miller's Tale out Harrow and Alas kind of thing. Where she's going, no, no, don't. But what she really means is, yeah, give it to yeah. me. And then you get her perspective. And her perspective is she didn't especially want to marry this lord. The wedding night was not a night of bliss, but she was being a dutiful wife. She's found things very difficult with her mother-in-law. Um, the fact that there was no child on the way was kind of an issue for her. She was doing a lot to ameliorate her husband's mismanagement of his estate. Um, but again, she was being a loyal, dutiful wife. She did not like this squire. She tried to avoid him at all costs. And then her mother-in-law went out and took all the servants with her without... Um, her, you know, even though she pleaded for her not mm -hmm. to, and this squire tricked his way into the castle and raped her, and it's really visceral, you know, it's it's clearly rape in her perspective. And then they obviously get to the bit at the end where they fight the duel, and it is a really interesting. I mean, it's it's historically accurate in some areas, and in other areas, most noticeably the costuming, mm -hmm. it's not. Um, but. It was an interesting look at our attitudes in compared to medieval attitudes on subjects such as rape. Yeah. Um, and it was a very well done film. It was really well shot. So I didn't feel that it necessarily added a lot to the discussion, but it didn't take anything away from the discussion mm. either, in my okay. opinion. Okay, that's a really interesting one. Um, I do have... Uh, another example and I will confess I have not watched this film I don't intend to watch this film um, I have read and watched a lot about it um, but I've not watched it and uh, to be honest I wouldn't recommend it to anyone either based on what I've kind of heard um, and that is the um, the film or the bio the biopic she says in inverted commas uh, blonde um, about Marilyn Monroe um, based on the novel, I think, of the same name by um, by Oates, uh, Joyce Carol Oates, I think it is. Yeah. Um, Who is absolutely fucking bonkers, by uh, the way. Yeah. Um, She's come up with some really, really weird shit on Twitter recently. Anyway, sorry. Uh, yeah. Um, <laughs> so the they tried, I think they tried, um, a lot of people kind of started by approaching it with regards to saying, well, okay, well, let's talk about the costumes. And they very much, they did the whole sort of costume thing where, for example, obviously they they completely decided to ignore the, the, the sort of underwear that um, she would have been wearing at the time, which were, of course, particularly the bras, which kind of created sort of the cone-shaped breasts. Um, that was a yeah. very iconic look for... Um, for Marilyn Monroe and they clearly didn't want to do that because it, it it would have been sort of comical really for us now and so they went oh no we can't have that we need her to be sexy completely ignoring the fact that she was very you know she was an incredibly attractive person um which kind of meant that a lot of the sort of the looks and the costumes and stuff were very very sort of felt quite loose um and lacked the kind of the charm the wonder um that you would expect um and that was so kind of iconic with the image of marilyn monroe um but that's not actually the major issue which a lot of people have have come to with this uh adaptation 
Um, the adaptation uh, is incredibly, ha has been described as just being incredibly triggering. Um, it's meant to be a story which is looking at um, Marilyn Monroe's desperate struggle um, to be separated from her persona as Marilyn Monroe from her actual self. Uh, which, what was her name? Um, I've just forgotten it. I want to say Norma it, Jean. It is Norma Jean, that's it. Baker? Yeah, uh, yeah, Norma Jean. For some reason I kept thinking of Billie Jean and I'm like, Billie Jean is something completely different. Put that away. Uh, Norma Jean, yeah. Um, and sh her, her kind of, her struggle with that. And if we look at sort of accounts of who uh, Marilyn Monroe was, um, her, she, her, her version of, of Marilyn was cultivated. She cultivated it um, and who she was sort of in her day-to-day -day with her friends and stuff like that was very very different she was seen as being very reserved um quiet and even uh prudish um and they yeah. the filmmakers for this completely ignored that they completely ignored who it was they hypersexualized her despite the fact that this is all meant to be a story about her trying to escape the hypersexualization of the the cultivated marilyn monroe image um they they fabricated a whole bunch of things, including uh, Marilyn's mother trying to drown her when she was a baby um, or when she was a child, which there doesn't seem to be any account of at all. We know that her mother definitely did have a, um, a sort of a, a breakdown of some kind and was, I believe, diagnosed with schizophrenia. Um, but the way that her kind of illness is portrayed is not in keeping. They completely shifted Marilyn's story so that pretty much everything she does is because of her absent father, um, who probably didn't actually play that much of a role in her, in her real life. And um, they kind of also ascribed the fact that all of her successes any time she got a role or anything like that it was because she'd slept her way into it or she had been sexually assaulted and the entire movie shows her being sexually assaulted now um there is evidence um, and accounts which do say that she definitely did suffer assault in her life um they really really ramp it up they ramp up a lot of the sex she seems to just be having a lot of sex they decide to kind of play into the rumors that she had a relationship with JFK and then put this whole story where JFK actually had her drugged and assaulted her. Um, they uh, they put this horrific, and this is probably one of the most triggering elements of it, um, a horrific abortion sequence throughout, um, which actually kind of, I think, literally shows you the abortion so far as I've understood it, I haven't watched the scene, nor do I intend to, like from the inside um, with a yeah. CGI baby and stuff like that, which is just, you know, a, a, also the fact that they then decided they were going to do the CGI baby um, f formed in a way that would would literally, the baby would not have been formed at the point that she was pregnant if she had had an abortion. I don't think we even know for sure that she... That's someone with... Yeah, that's someone with an axe yeah, to grind it, it was about, definitely... Um, yeah, there was a pro-choice agenda there. Everything was framed like Marilyn, uh, you know, all of the misfortune that fell on Marilyn was, you know, her own, was kind of her own doing, was was because of who she was as a person. Um, and that she lacked agency. She was just crying. She was upset. She was never happy. All of these kinds of things, completely ignoring the very successful businesswoman who negotiated and pushed for 
um, equal pay to her male counterparts, a woman who also helped a lot of other um, creators and actors and and artists during her time, including black artists and things during, you know, a time of great racism and stuff like that. Um, you know, a woman who had agency, um, who was savvy and intelligent and um, had this whole kind of other life which had nothing to do with the cultivation of, of the Marilyn Monroe image. And they've just completely ignored it, fabricating several things in order to kind of fit an agenda. Um, and it very much feels like a punishment fantasy. And I think the most awful thing is that the way her death is presented in the end is as if it is a relief, as if her whole life was so miserable that death was the only answer, death was the only good thing that ever happened to her. Um, which frankly disgusts me, um, because this is this was a real human being and um, there is a complete lack of regard for her as a person. Despite what you might have thought of her, that's just cruel. Yeah, that's just... I mean, I, I haven't seen it either. I'd been intending to watch it, but then I kept seeing this sort of like, no, it's it's really bad. And the more I looked into why people thought it was bad, I was thinking, yeah, actually, that will really bug me. Yeah. So, yeah, she, her persona as Marilyn was completely different to who she actually was as a person. Yeah. And I do think that the whole sort of like, oh, yeah, she was so sexy, etc. A lot of that is kind of, that's the bit that, certain people remember so that's the bit that gets pushed at us rather than actually she was quite a talented singer and performer and the fact that yes she would sometimes play on a sex appeal when she was playing certain roles and things yeah but that wasn't her in her day-to-day -day, and that again she basically reinvented herself she started out from quite humble origins as well she did she? yeah and i think the thing that really gets me is the way that they basically kind of had to ascribe all of her success and everything that she did to to a man essentially um and either it was going to be whoever was assaulting or sleeping with her at any given time um or it was her father um and they really lent into the whole father thing um to the extent that they had her whenever she had any lovers she would exclusively call them daddy and stuff like that and i'm yeah. like we're first of all we're starting to see a sort of a fetishized thing here which i think seems to be a lot more to do with the director than it does to do with the actual person um but yep. it's it's basically a version where you've decided you want to tell a certain story and you have decided to completely disregard the reality and the most criminal thing for me is the way that it has been presented as if this is a true and accurate telling of her life. And that disgusts me because it would have been bad enough if you'd basically said, right, well, I'm going to take an interpretation from a figure. Because I think the other thing is when you have sort of idols and popular figures, they're almost, fic you know, fictional, I think, in our minds because yeah. we they're, they're so out of our grasps. Um, you know, it, it would... It would be one thing to kind of say, well, I'm going to take this figure, uh, you know, like we do with, you know, with past kings and stuff like that. And I'm going to interpret them in that way for my own means. OK, but the fact that it's presented as a biopic, as something which is meant to inform us about her life um, is is incredibly cruel um, and just for me really demonstrates 
a total lack of regard um and also a complete lack of vision in that they're trying to tell the story which was about her separating that and in telling the story they do absolutely they do more to accentuate the idea of her marilyn monroe and um norma jean being the same person um then actually to separate them as a persona and an actual living human being yeah um okay talking uh, i may just give that a miss to be honest um talking about things which uh, <laughs> are essentially flights of fancy rather than at all historically mm-hmm. accurate we've come up finally to the woman king yeah. Which, when I initially saw, you know, like teasers for it, I thought, oh, great, they're doing something on African history. This is really interesting. Yeah. It's an area I don't know as much mm-hmm. about. Um, the Woman King is getting a lot, it, it's caused a lot of controversy, and it's understandable why it has done mm-hmm. so. Um, you can look into reasons why, but I will give a few. Mm-hmm. Basically, the it's set in 1823. Right. And it's in the the old Dahomey kingdom in West Africa. Um, And the whole point is it's what they're really going for is a black female empowerment film. Unfortunately, they have decided to forget a few inconvenient facts. So at this point in God, where do you start at this point? Basically, the, the Dahomey setup, there were a group of women, a very particular female um, army, if mm-hmm. you like, or arm of the of the army, as it were, their army of this particular tribe, yeah. uh, called the Agoji. Yeah. They were all fi- they were all female. They were all technically considered to be wives of the king, although he never had sexual relations or anything with them. Ergo, they were by default celibate, although they appear to have like the like the mythical Amazons explored relationships with mm-hmm. each other, uh, as you would. You know, men are off bound, but women aren't. It's just you can't get pregnant because then that would take you out of circulation for serving this yeah. army. How women joined this particular army, uh, there were voluntary recruits, there were a few. You could also be sold to this army uh, if your parents thought you were a particularly rebellious girl, and that did happen yeah. a lot. Uh, the other thing they did, they took promising youngsters, promising young girls from the towns and villages of other tribes, which they attacked and sacked and enslaved. Yep. So a good proportion of that army started off as slaves. And they one of their main roles was actually to go out and raid other towns and enslave people. Um the whole problem with how the Dahomey are presented in this is that they were one of the main, if not the major, players when it came to enslaving other Africans. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we know that aside from a few Portuguese, uh, Europeans did not make inroads into Africa because you wouldn't live long enough. We just, you know, we were not adapted for the climate. We were not adapted some of the diseases and things that were in Africa any more than if the reverse had been true people would have been adapted for the climate here or the diseases we currently had in in our society Um, to you know the average life expectancy of a white European in Africa was about one year and you were lucky if you made it that far (laughs) yeah so the chances of someone making a progression through Africa, which, by the way, is a huge continent. It's not just a country. Yeah, it's and huge. also, like, the way it's portrayed on maps, you think, oh, that's big. Remember that the map is 
those maps not are accurate. not accurate because of course it's kind of got to be calculated in terms of being a sphere and it's bigger it's bigger than it appears on maps um proportionately Definitely. just just letting you know <laughs> so yeah and what they've done with this film apparently is they've had the Dahomey acknowledge that they might have had just a tiny thing to do with slavery in the past not that they were some of the biggest sellers of slaves uh, but that they really want to change their economy into palm oil to trade with the Europeans um, now they were diversifying they were trying to sell palm oil mm -hmm. as well but uh, you have to remember at this point in history Britain had abolished slavery and was treating with every other European country, sometimes in good relations, sometimes with force, to get them to abolish slavery as yeah. well. It doesn't matter whether you think the reasons they were doing this were altruistic or not. The point was, the end result was they were abolishing slavery. Yes. More white Europeans were involved in fight, literally physically fighting slavery than were ever involved in actually... Um, you know, putting it putting it forward, uh, actively selling yeah. slaves. Um, so that was kind of an issue. And they've got the Dahomey here rising up against these incoming Brazilian slave traders mm -hmm. and Portuguese slave traders who are, you know, coming to buy African slaves. And you've got the main character, Naniska, who is played by Viola Davis, who, by the way, I think is a fantastic actor. Mm -hmm. um, saying you know anyone basically literally anyone who's black is one of my people too kind of thing and it's just that is not their attitude the character Naniska who was based on the historical figure she was based on was ha owned many slaves herself um she was a you know a favored general so she did own many mm -hmm. slaves um when she was initially being trained to be part of this army uh, she went through the period of desensitivity training that all the women went through, and that involved killing some of your slaves by beheading them. Yeah. Um, she did that. She was known for being incredibly brutal, the person this she was based on. Um, king Gezo, who is the king at this point in time, his nickname was the Slave King because he was that into slavery. <laughs> he did not want to diversify just into palm oil and not sell slaves. Slavery was so lucrative. The entire kingdom and wealth was based on slavery, okay? I'm not exaggerating any of this. Yeah. Um, and he was in talks with the British because the British were like, we're going to blockade the bay. You will not be able to get slaves out. Our ships are superior. Our weapons are superior. We are not allowing you to do this. Yeah. Um, he said he would do anything else the British wanted except give up slavery. We've actually got documented evidence that he said this. You know. And... In 1853, he finally agreed to stop trading slaves and the blockade was lifted. And in 1857, he immediately started again. So as soon as he was able to, he started trading slaves yeah. again. This, so this entire portrayal of them fighting white Europeans because we're coming in and we're going to change their way of life. You know, there was some of that, but that was much later on in the Victorian mm -hmm. period. Um, so I'm not arguing that, you know, all the white Europeans who are going to Africa, all of them were great guys, because that is not yeah. the case. <laughs> but the problem here is that they've taken a really interesting piece of African history and they've woke washed it um, to make it palatable to tell the story they want to do. And I think it's incredibly irresponsible the way they've done it. And I'm really kind of upset about it because 
it's actually not unusual to find uh, various African kingdoms and tribes that had all women fighting units. I mean, for example, Chakazulu had an, an all women fighting mm-hmm. unit. Um, there were many places where they were considered the personal bodyguards of the king. It's not, it was an unusual thing. But it also wasn't as woke and girl power as people are trying to make it out to be because they did, you know, by entering this, they did get a different life to most women. Mm-hmm. But they also lost a lot of freedoms as well. They couldn't have husbands or children or anything like that. And they were technically owned by the king. I think it's also, it's a sensualization of kind of a story, which is, I think it it is almost in some ways kind of jumping off of of the Black Panther sort of success now obviously black panther uh, we cannot lie um they really did their they did their research so the aesthetic the ideas and things like that when they made that movie is based on sort of a reality of a number of different um tribes across africa again africa being a huge huge continent and having lots and lots of different people um and also uh, being a huge continent and having lots of different people of different skin tones as well across you know across the whole thing if you start in egypt for example um you will tend to find at the top uh people who have quite pale skin um and you know and this is historically and then going further down people who kind of their skin darkened as they neared the equator line as would be you know biologically um i say biologically you know uh, sort of yeah more obvious that as would make sense um and what's happened is that particularly because this is going to be geared obviously towards you know this is hollywood um there's this whole thing where you have a lot of obviously a lot of black people um in the u.s who are the descendants of slaves and who had their history robbed from them and it so much robbed from them that, for example, they're all called um, African-American, d- completely ignoring the fact that a lot of them will have come from Jamaica as well, you know, as, as a lot of other places. Um, so they're so robbed of that that there isn't even necessarily a kind of an understanding of where, which continent, which part of the world they even came from. And Africa obviously being a huge place, you know, what 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 was their, you know, what was their tribe? Which country did they come from? this has all been robbed from them and what's being presented here is they're kind of being sort of given back some of their history ah this is you know this is my heritage this is my lineage in the same way that we we had with sort of braveheart and it's not an accurate heritage it's not an accurate lineage it is still again and it is a a story which is being controlled by and there will at least be someone you know, at the top there, again, in in, um, in Las Vegas. Um, it's a story which is being controlled by an outside external force um, and is not accurate to the truth, to the history, and to the real people who lived, even if they were not palatable human beings. Um, history, pretty much no one in history is a palatable human being by our standards. They're not really supposed to be because we want a world where our morals continue to improve. That's, you know, as we earn, learn more and as we kind of improve ourselves. So you're kind yeah. of, in, in sort of creating this, oh yeah, we're going to create this story and, and represent something, you're actually robbing people, um, I think, because you're controlling your, even the history that you're giving them is being controlled 
it's not actually even accurate um, to the reality at all. And once more, it is being presented as if it is. Yeah, and that is, well, that's the issue. It, it, like I said, I just think it's really irresponsible to do it this way. And you, we can have a bit of a laugh at Braveheart now, but I mean, this is going to have, this potentially could have had or could still have political ramifications because it does tap into this thing which certain groups are selling to uh, black Americans, which is that you are victims. You must embrace this victim narrative. Yeah. And that is very damaging. Um, and also completely ignores, you know, a whole bunch of other elements to sort of the history, the development and the agency of people um, in America who are black and come from all, all parts of the world. Um, and that also evilness was done, uh, you know, to others as well by, by black citizens. Um, it just... Yeah, I don't, I don't like it because ultimately you're being robbed. Um, you are being, you're having something taken away from you. Your narrative continues to be controlled by somebody else, and it's not about saying, well, you don't deserve a badass story. Um, I, I'm all for a badass story where, okay, well, actually, it's nice to see uh, some female warriors. It's nice to see some black female warriors. This whole kind of thing. That's okay. There were lots of opportunities where you could historically have made that story and still kind of be accurate and just actually decided it was going to be about something else, not about slavery and or actually looked for real examples of people who did fight, you know, slavery or things like that, or made something up, made it fictional, but based on elements of truth. That would all be fine, but again, it's the presentation as if it is true because it's based on real people and it's being, you know, presented and marketed like a true story. Um, I'm not comfortable with it. Yeah, same. So it's a shame because otherwise it would have probably been completely in my wheelhouse, but I, I don't think I can watch it now. Yeah. Um, and something that Viola Davis has been sort of rapidly saying is that if you don't go to the cinema and support it, what you're, you're basically sexist and racist. And that's not the issue. The issue is that many people, um, a huge section of sort of uh, black black community on Twitter are saying boycott this film because what you're doing is you're supporting this narrative and we don't want that narrative supported. Yeah. Um, I'm not saying boycott it, I'm just saying that, you know, to be honest, a major historical inaccuracy would pull me out of a film anyway. But at this point, I'm, I'm just like, no, you made you made a choice there. This isn't a mistake. You chose to do this and I can't support Yeah, you that. chose to do it and in choosing to do it, you were deciding to rewrite history. You weren't just making a kind of a creative decision and then admitting that you were making a creative decision. You were making a creative decision and then presenting it as reality and that's a that's a choice that's a decision um yeah which kind of makes my eyes narrow a tiny bit yeah definitely so that we've we've really overrun on this episode <laughs> so I'm very sorry we obviously had a lot more to say than i thought we were going to have to say um but yeah, basically, I think where I come down is that if you're adapting something, yes, you're going to have to make creative decisions and it's fine. Yeah. But 
once again we're back to what are you changing and why are you changing yes um and also what are the consequences of you changing it um you know because it is always worth considering the 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 consequences and what you might be saying even if you don't intend to be saying it that's very very important yeah um right well before we go It is time for our Dissecting Dragons recommendation of the week. Um, And I am actually going to be talking about an adaptation. Um, I would like to recommend Mythos uh, by Stephen Fry, which is his um, version, his his retelling of the Greek myths. Now, obviously, Stephen Fry was an avid fan of the Greek myths for a long time um, and really did his research. He has, you know, obviously he's taken a few liberties, which he does discuss in his his foreword. Um, So if you read that, you will find out kind of some of the directions that he's taken with it um but it can't be said that he hasn't done his due diligence and his research and that he isn't you know informed by a very very long adoration of greek mythology uh mythos i think is the first of a trilogy um which sort of tells sort of the origin the beginnings um and some of the early myths with the gods and the creation of of basically the greek pantheon it is beautifully written the stories are kind of self-contained but all sort of inform one another um you get a real idea of the relationship between things obviously he he is limited because there are different versions of, of different myths which he does acknowledge um but i do think it's probably one of the finest um collections of sort of greek mythos um for a kind of a beginner who wants to sort of come in and learn about them uh, because a lot of the time you either have highly inaccurate or highly sensationalized versions um, or very dry tomes which are hard to get into and i think that he really has kind of created a bridge between those things and made something that's very enjoyable i highly recommend for those who are interested to listen to the audiobook which Stephen Fry reads himself um, and does a fantastic job with. I really, really enjoyed it um, and I'm really looking forward to reading the next in the series, which is Heroes, I believe. Cool. That sounds great. And on that note, guys, we'll say thanks very much for listening and we'll catch you guys next week. Yeah, thanks and goodbye. Bye! You've been listening to Dissecting Dragons the speculative fiction podcast. You can follow our podcast at podbean.com or from iTunes. For more information, visit our Facebook page at www.facebook.com forward slash dissectingreaders or check out our author websites at jaironside.com and madelinevaughan.com. Please note that no dragons were harmed during the making of this podcast. <laughs>